reviving us again. It's a great opportunity for us to be renewed. And as we look at Philippians chapter 3, verse 10 through 14, it reminds us of what really Paul focused on. He said, I want to know Christ, yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. And so somehow, attaining to the resurrection from the dead, not that I've already obtained all of this, or have already arrived at my goal, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining towards what is ahead, I press on towards the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. We are taking tonight and focusing on this uh, passage of 2 Corinthians 5.17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come, the old has gone, and the new is here. It's an exciting verse. It's an optimistic passage. It's a verse that gives us encouragement. I mean, in the NIV, it ends with an exclamation point. But if we really look at it, if we're really honest with ourselves, there's a part in there that's a little bit tricky. There's a place that we kind of get hung up, I think. And that's the idea of that old being gone, because sometimes it doesn't really feel like that. Sometimes it feels like the old's still kind of here in some ways. And so I want to ask you a question, but I want you to hold your response just for a second. I'm going to ask you a question, and I don't want you to respond intellectually. I don't want you to respond academically. I don't want you to respond theologically. I want your answer, your emotional answer, your visceral answer, and your behavioral answer. And that question is this. Do you really believe in forgiveness? Do you really honestly believe in it? Because when we look at the old being gone, believing in forgiveness is really kind of the linchpin. It's really kind of the key. It's a basic element, a core requirement of the old being gone. And we really sometimes struggle with this. I think there's three places that we really kind of have a challenge of letting go of the past, letting go of that old way of being and thinking. And the first one is in our relationship with other people. Because we look around and we say, man, people sometimes have treated me really badly. Sometimes people have acted towards me in, in a way that, that was really wrong. I'm really hurt. I've really been damaged by that. And we use our past, we use our history as a shield. It's our defense. It's the way that we keep from getting stung again. We're not going to reach out and touch that hot stove one more time. And if I'm honest, I mean, if we're really for real about that, there, that makes some sense. There's some wisdom in that. And I'm not encouraging you to throw all your boundaries away and just to accept anything that people bring to you and to, to just have people do whatever and you not respond. What I'm asking and what I'm trying to point out is that there are times when we're so busy protecting ourselves that we forget and are unable to love the people around us. We have our hands up so much that we can't have our arms out. If we look at 1 Thessalonians 5.15, it says, Make sure that nobody pays back wrong for wrong, but always strive to do what is good for each other and everybody else. God here and in other places says, Here's what's going to happen. You worry about love. You worry about loving the people around you, and I'll worry about the justice. 
And if for one minute you've forgotten that God is a God of justice, I really encourage you to flip through, flip, ah, flip through the Old Testament a little bit. Because it doesn't take long to find that God is a God that values and enacts justice when need be. I also don't want to minimize your pain. I don't want to pretend that nothing ever happened, that no struggle has ever been in your world. What I do want to communicate to you is that no matter how big your pain has been, no matter how badly people have treated you, and no matter how damaged you feel, God's love and his power is bigger than that. And that is really exciting. Another time, place that we really have difficulty with this is, is forgiving ourselves, giving, getting over our past behavior. Okay, maybe I can forgive other people. Maybe I can navigate that. But it's really hard for me to let go of the things I've done. Because I tell myself, man, if I can just beat myself up enough, if I can just tell myself how terrible I was, and if I can wake myself up in the middle of the night and spin through all the terrible things I've ever done and poor decisions I've made, if I really do that enough, then maybe at that point I'll convince myself that I don't want to do it again. But what's really interesting is when we look at people navigating addiction, we see the opposite being true. What we see is that when people can say, yeah, that was me. I wish I hadn't done that. That hurt, but now I'm here. I'm this new person. Because the other way, when we just beat ourselves up all the time, we kind of convince ourselves that we're pretty worthless. We convince ourselves that we don't have any other behaviors, and we end up falling back into those same patterns. Well, of course, the Word of God beats us to that concept. Ephesians 2.8, For it is by grace you have been saved, through faith. This is not from yourselves, but is a gift of God. By grace you have been saved even when we were broken, at our most negative, at our uh, biggest mistake. If we believe in that forgiveness, then we are better able to embrace the new creation that we are now. And the third piece of this is sometimes our past, sometimes our history, our hurt, our mistakes, becomes such a crucial part of our identity that we really have a hard time breaking away from that. We look at the way people have treated us, and that's how we expect to be treated in the future. We look at the way we behaved, and that's how we expect to behave in the future. And our mistakes have a tendency to define who we're going to be now, the way people have treated us to define what we expect. As long as we identify more heavily with the hurt and the mistakes that we've made and find our identity there more strongly than we find our identity and our faith and our relationship in Christ, we're always going to struggle with this. I have got to find my identity in Christ and who he is, what he's done for me, and my faith. And, and when I can decide that that's who I am, then this becomes a different thing. John 1.12, Yet all who did receive him, those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. At your most broken, we became children of God. That is our identity. He values us. God loves us and has a plan for us. And here's the really encouraging secret. We don't have to be all sorted out before God can use us. And you say, okay, Sean, yeah, but you don't know the family that I come from. You don't know the history I've got. You don't know the, you don't know the dysfunction that I grew up with, the brokenness that I came from. And you're right, I don't. But I do know the dysfunction that Joseph came from. 
I know the brokenness of his family, the people that sold him into slavery in another country and told his dad he was dead. I know his brokenness. And what I see from him is a guy that God still used in a powerful way. Okay, okay, well, that's stuff that happened to him. Sean, you don't know the mistakes I've made. You don't know the, the errors I've made and how deeply I've sinned and, and the stuff that I carry around. And you're right, I don't. But like we've been talking in here every Sunday night for a while, I do know David's story. I know his sin of adultery. I know him hiding it through killing a loyal, uh, a loyal man of his, being instrumental in his death. I know his sin. And I also know that God still had a powerful role for him. And if God can work in those two guys' life, then maybe he can work in ours as well. There's one other guy I want to throw out there. Philippians 3.13. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it. But this one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead. Written by Paul, formerly Saul, who actively persecuted Christians. This is a man with maybe literal blood on his hands from Christians. And here he is saying, I'm letting go of the past and I'm moving towards the future. And I think there may be a little bit more than the, in this than just kind of a statement. I think this may be a strategy. What Paul decides he's going to do is he's going to pour every bit of himself into this striving. He's going to pour his attention and his energy into this new kingdom. He's going to bring people to God. He's going to make that the centerpiece of what's going on in his mind and what's going on in his behavior. And then what seems to happen is he seems to have some freedom from the past and from the history. I think that's a strategy that we can, can work for us as well. So I want to ask you that question one more time. Do you believe in forgiveness? Do you believe in forgiveness? Because if so then it should change the way we think about the people around us and about ourselves. And it should change our behavior as we interact with the people around us and with ourselves. Thanks. I know that my Redeemer lives and ever prays. Four. That, however, is not the way of life you learned when you heard about Christ and were taught in him in accordance with the truth that is in Jesus. You were taught, with regard to your former way of life, to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, to be made new in the attitudes of your minds, and to put on the new self, created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. We are the resurrected. That's our identity, you and I. We are those who have died and been raised to life. That is powerful, right? And that is a shared experience that we have. Those of us who have been baptized, we chose to die to sin and choose to live in Christ. We have been resurrected. I want to tell you a story uh, this is a brand new story. I'm, I'm confident that you have never heard this story before. Um, there's a father that has two sons, and we're going to focus on this younger son. The younger son comes to his father and says, Father, I really want your stuff. I don't really want you. I just want your stuff. In fact, it would be better for me if you 
died, but you're not going to do that anytime soon, so could we pretend that you were dead? Could I just have my inheritance and leave? And the father does something that's shocking. He says yes. He gives the inheritance to this son that does not want relationship with him. And the son runs off and spends it on reckless things, things that don't, don't merit anything holy, things that are unwholesome, and he wastes it quickly. He finds himself destitute. He needs to provide for himself, and he does what is the very lowest thing. He's, he serves pigs, and not only that, he finds himself jealous of what the pigs are eating, and then it dawns on him, okay, I need a roof over my head. I need food in my stomach. My dad's servants had that. I should just go back to my dad and maybe he'll at least let me be a servant. So he rehearses it in his head over and over and over. Father, I've sinned against you. Please, please just let me be a servant in your household. And so as he sees his father and he's, he's humbled and he knows he's about to confess this to his father, his father again surprises him and runs to him and embraces him. And rather than make him a servant in the house, he reinstates him. He's an heir again. He has been forgiven. The generosity, forgiveness, and mercy of this father are just, they're astounding. Maybe you have heard that story before. It's the prodigal son. You're very familiar with it. But let's imagine for a second. Take some liberties, right? Because we know that story, but we don't. We don't know what would happen if we were to follow up. What if we could look back two years later and everything is normal, the son is an heir again, he's been reinstated, and a thought occurs to him. I wonder. I wonder what would happen if I did it again. I wonder what would happen if I chose to leave my father, to take money, to waste it again, living recklessly, things that I thought were fun, even though I know that they're not good for me. What would happen if I did that? And then I came back and I said, I'm sorry. I wonder if I'd get another party. Would this work out well for me? Like, that's ridiculous, right? That should be unfathomable to us. How could anyone do that to a father that was so loving and forgiving and was willing to reinstate it is equally as ridiculous for those of us who have been resurrected to new life to choose that old life, to choose the death of sin over life in Christ. If you have experienced life with Christ, then you are resurrected and you should not desire that old life. So what does that new life in Christ look like? I think Colossians 3 does a good job of spelling it out. If you have a Bible with you, you're welcome to turn there, or we have it on the screen. Colossians 3 opens by talking about putting, uh, putting to death sinful nature, putting to death earthly desires, and then it transitions to characterizing life committed to Christ. <clears throat> Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, Clothe yourself with, listen to these characteristics. These are meant to define us, this new life that we have taken up. Clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other 
and forgive one another if any of you has a grievance against someone. Forgive as the Lord forgave you, and over all these virtues put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. What does this new life look like, this resurrected life, this life in Christ? Well, it looks like us being compassionate and kind. It looks like us being humble and gentle and patient. It looks like us bearing with one another even when people make it difficult to bear with them. It means we forgive one another and we love others. When you are baptized, you received the Holy Spirit. You are indwelt with the Holy Spirit, and the Spirit works in your life to bring about these characteristics. We often read those uh, texts in Galatians that we characterize as the fruit of the Spirit, and, and it's very similar to this text. And the more you grow in the Spirit and your relationship with the Spirit, the more that this new life starts to cultivate in yours. When others see us, they should see these characteristics and an important thing about these characteristics where they come from the origin of these characteristics is God these characteristics find their nature in God's nature this is who God is and we are meant to emulate him so when others see us in our new life our resurrected life they should get a glimpse of God that is a big responsibility but it's an important one People often ask, is this new life really better than the one I left behind? Absolutely. I'm not going to spell out all the reasons. Uh, it's, it's more fulfilling than the life you had before. Uh, you live with purpose like you never had before. You get to emulate God to others. A familiar analogy for transformation is that of the caterpillar and the butterfly. I'm not going to teach you the process. I'm confident you're familiar with it. But a, tr a transformation occurs. Before, it's a caterpillar. And I don't know that this is exactly the same caterpillar and butterfly, but I do know that it's a monarch caterpillar and a monarch butterfly. Before, it is a caterpillar. After the process, it's a butterfly. Is it the same being? Yes and no. Yes, it's the same being, but it has been fundamentally transformed. It's unrecognizable. A butterfly cannot undo this process, nor would you think it would ever want to. It has experienced a new, more powerful, open life. Those of us who have been baptized, we have been resurrected through the waters of baptism, and we have been transformed. And the call of these texts that we've read today is to live into that reality. You have been transformed. Don't revert back. Don't choose slavery. Don't choose death. Live as those who have been resurrected. Embrace the new life that you have in Christ. We are that prodigal son. We have been forgiven. We have been given new life. We have been restored. Live into that reality. Live as those who have been brought from death to life. Live as the resurrected. Well, in all these steps, we see God's hand working, and we, in this next scripture, we get to see what God has prepared for us. Revelation chapter 21, verse 1 through 5, it says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. 
I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will no longer uh, be any death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I'm making everything new. Then he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. One of the most uh, popular TV shows these days, in case you didn't know, is people who go in and take old houses and flip them into newer houses. Some of you know this because you spend hours and hours watching these shows. Some of you know this because you actually try to do this. We bought an older house recently, and not that we know what we're doing or have any business trying to do what we're probably doing, but we're not flipping the house, we're just trying to update it. And that's enough work for me already. I can't imagine going in there like so often these people do and just basically demolish everything and pretty much start over. But there's always something in these programs. There's always something in these shows. It's the highlight. It's the big moment, the big reveal. And so they always show the before. This is what the house looked like, for example. And then they show the after, the big reveal, and they pull something away or they open their eyes and they see how beautiful their new home is. And it's this great moment of celebration and people often laugh and cry and, and jump up and down and hug each other. And they're so excited because their old house is now a new house. Well, it doesn't take long for us to realize that we are all victims of a broken world, that life in many ways needs repair, that there is so much sin and struggle and brokenness that we long for something new, something better, in fact, something perfect. I just came from the hospital, and hospitals, as you know, are vivid reminders of the brokenness of our world symbols of sickness and sometimes even death. But we long for that reveal moment, don't we? We long for that moment where we see something new, something much better. And in the very last book of the Bible, John has this revelation. He's given this revelation from the Lord, and in this revelation, we get a glimpse of the reveal moment of the newness that we will inherit. Let's go back to the text that Kevin read just a few moments ago, Revelation 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. 
He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. For the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Then he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. He said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give water without cost from the spring of the water of life. Those who are victorious will inherit all of this, and I will be their God, and they will be my children. Verse 8, but the cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, those who practice magic arts, the idolaters, and the liars, they will be consigned to the fiery lake of burning sulfur. This is the second death. You see, we get this glimpse of that big revealing moment where the old world and all of its irrepair and all of its struggle and all of its brokenness is made new by God. You see, the text says that God is making all things new. And he speaks right to to us, right to where we live. He says, there will be no more crying, no more mourning, no more You see, that's the old, broken world. But there's a new, improved, perfect world that is awaiting us. So God is in the process of making all things new. And did you notice where God will be and where we will be? We're told that God will dwell among his people. We will live together in the presence of God. He will dwell among his people. I'm reminded of John chapter 1, and the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us, and we have seen his glory. And One day God will dwell among us, and we will experience, we will see his glory. Oh, we long for that day, the day that we are in the presence of God forever. But until then, we have a job. We have a calling. Otherwise, God would just beam us up to heaven, right? What is our calling? What is our job? In many ways, I think God calls us to be co-creators in this new world. Yes, one day all things will be made new, but God is making things.